Hey guys, it's Kina. Before we get into the episode, which was really great, by the way, I was joined by Jerry from the Presidencies of the United States podcast, and we had such a great time. But we recorded this Friday night when the news broke about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. There's even a moment where we kind of fangirl over her and talk about how much we love her, and we had no idea that she had passed that moment. So I would like to dedicate this episode to her because of RBG. I can get a mortgage without a man. I have the right to my own bank account without a male co-signer. I have the right to have a job without being discriminated against because I'm a woman. I have the right to have a job and get pregnant if I want to. And this is just a small amount of things that RBG has done for me. And for all my LGBTQ plus brothers and sisters and non-binary pals out there, she has relentlessly fought for your right to love who you love. And she will be so missed. I feel like she's earned her rest. And now it's time for us to fight. So I, I, I'm asking that we all honor her by voting. Honor her by encouraging others to register to vote. To honor her by volunteering at polling places. Donating to campaigns and fight for justice, and fight for equality for all. She was remarkable. She was a force of nature. And we will go over her life and her accomplishments and just how amazing she she truly, truly is during our extra AF this month. One thing that I did find that gave me some comfort was that in the Jewish teachings, it says that those that die just before the Jewish New Year are the ones that God has held back until the last moment because they were needed the most, and they were the most righteous. And just like that, RBG died as sunset on the last night of the year, beginning Rosh Hashanah. May her memory be a blessing. Enjoy this episode, guys. Take it away, past Kina and Jerry. Welcome, history nerds, to Historical AF. I'm Kina. And I'm Jerry. We are two historians delivering you the morbid and random historical nuggets you never knew you needed in your ear holes. This week, I am joined by Presidency's podcast for Episode 74, Presidents Part 2. I'm so excited to have you. Glad to be here. You can't talk about presidents without having Presidency's podcast. So I'm just so excited you agreed to come on. (laughs) (laughs) I aim to please. This is very excited to have you. So tell everybody about your podcast. So my podcast is the Presidencies of the United States. I started it, see, it's been three and a half years now. Basically, I started podcasting with a podcast called the Harrison Podcast. And you can see I'm sporting Harrison (laughs) gear. I started with William Henry Harrison, who I've always been fascinated by. I still remember being, as we say in the South, knee-high to a June bug. (laughs) Just, we had, you know, back in those days, you had the the encyclopedias, and I would have, like, half the volumes out on the floor researching presidents. And Harrison was always one that I was fascinated by. But with the election of 2016, I had friends, folks who I had met through the podcast, asking questions about you know, well, tell me about this in presidential history. Have we ever seen something like this? What does the Constitution say about that? 
And so I decided that I needed to expand my mission and thus was born presidencies. So my podcast is basically going through presidential history, one presidency at a time and trying to look at, you know, not just the president, but the other individuals, the other events that make a presidency because it's not just about one person. And Mm -hmm. in that, you know, there's always so much focus, and especially on characters like Washington and Jefferson, but we don't hear about some of the people who made it possible for them to do what they did. You know, yeah. like Elias Lear, you don't hear as much about like Oni Judge. And that's been one of the, the greatest things about my podcast, being able to bring those stories to light and having people fascinated by these these folks and these events that they may have never heard about. Now, with that level of detail, after three and a half years, I'm still only on Jefferson's first term. So. <laughs> I was about to ask you how far you've gotten. So that's great. You're never going to run out of material. <laughs> I've got a ways to go. I try to release every two weeks. With Washington, I had 36 episodes in that series. With John Adams, it was 26 and um, I just released episode 21 of the the Jefferson series. So I really do go in depth. I also have some special episodes. I occasionally have guests on talk about their work. I'm also right now doing a special series this year because we're in a presidential election year about mm-hmm. the history of presidential elections. And there's, you know, just so much that we don't realize what came to be what we think of as modern elections, Mm -hmm. all the history behind that. And again, fascinating figures, fascinating events, some good, some not so much, but I just really love being able to share that with the audience. That is perfect. And it's so important right now because it's in the news constantly, like Trump, you know, saying he would go for a third term. And a lot of people are like, wait, can that happen? So that's a really awesome series you're doing. And I bet people are just so thrilled they don't have to look it up themselves. (laughs) It gets very confusing. And constitutional history isn't for everybody because it's very difficult to read if you're not uh, a lawyer, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, and, and especially you get into like some of the drier stuff, like, you know, the independent treasury. I, I'm probably one of a handful of people who actually finds that interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but I love being able to, you know, kind of process some of that stuff and, and especially like some of the, the more dense scholarly works that you know, your average, your general audience isn't really going to approach, but being able to take that and show that there is some good stuff in there because ultimately, and and that's at the heart of my podcast, it's all about the people. You know, Mm -hmm. this is, this is our shared history. And there were individuals just like us who had ambitions, who had desires, who had their flaws. And, I think sometimes that, you know, you see some of these figures who are turned into pseudo mythological figures. And to me, the interesting stuff is the humanity to them. You mm-hmm. know, George Washington was a human just like us and, and really getting to that and being able to share that with the audience and getting them interested in, you know, if, if I can make the independent treasury interesting, I'm glad to do so. <laughs> For the longest time when people said 
anything about history. I was like, oh, it was my worst subject or I hated it. So boring. And I'm loving how many history podcasts are now because we all have our own little special spin on it. And people are now saying, well, it's interesting or it's fun or hilarious. And people are taking that and going our own way to discover more and to read a book and makes my little nerd heart happy because <laughs> <laughs> it's like a dagger every time somebody says that history is boring I'm like oh it's not it's just we can learn so much from uh, what happened hundreds of years ago and even like presidents you know things I think I mentioned in episode one that you know George Washington warned about a two-party system and then to see where we are now and people are now debating whether or not we should have a two-party system. So it's it's kind of the same issues popping up. So it's really interesting to see how we've evolved, but we also have not. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, I've not too far. Of, you know, you know, we have these points in American history where folks are afraid that, you know, are we really going to be able to continue this? Are we really mm-hmm. going to be able to move forward from this? And that's one of the things that I've enjoyed about doing some of the early presidencies because I think folks tend to think of those times and, oh, well, after Washington became president, everything was fine. And no, it wasn't. I mean, people were still scared just as much as they were in future times and and just as much as some people are now. Mm -hmm. Um, They didn't know that it was going to live on and and carry on for another 200 plus years. They, you know, a few years in, they thought, oh, well, this is just all going to fall apart. And what are we going to do then? And they figured it out. So I have confidence that we can figure it out. Um, Our answers may not be the answers of people 200 years ago, and they probably shouldn't be. Yeah, Um, I would vote for they shouldn't be. (laughs) (laughs) Jefferson felt that we should rip up the Constitution every 20 years. He felt that we shouldn't have a Constitution that was made by people who are no longer living Mm-hmm. and still governing over the living, he felt that we should be empowered to make our own constitution. I don't think we should necessarily go to that extreme because I can't imagine having a constitutional convention right now. <laughs> Could you? I, I, I can't. No. <laughs> the idea just like dumpster fire came to my mind. Just the amount of fighting. <laughs> I, I'm thinking there would have to be some survivor rules and both folks would be voted off the island. <laughs> yeah. Not everybody's going to make it out alive. It would be a disaster. Yeah. It's it's insane but yeah i i'm just so fascinated by all that and i i'm also delighted that people are showing an interest especially because our future really depends on this election in a lot of ways and i'm hoping that the constitution gets a little sprucing up i don't think i'd throw it out at this point but you know with how many elections the popular vote hasn't seemed to matter and i think people are frustrated and you know, could you even imagine the founding fathers thinking of that being a thing that would happen? <laughs> like, just so many things that happen now. They probably are like, you should have updated it. <laughs> this isn't what we meant. <laughs> we really didn't mean that. And that's another thing, like, you know, whenever whenever folks bring out the, well, this is what the founders intended. Well, the founders didn't all agree. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they, they had some very different ideas about what, how things should be. And the Constitution was a compromise. And I think that's one thing that if we are to 
learn something from the founders and really take that and, and apply it to the present day, it's that we do have to be willing to compromise. Mm -hmm. We can't assume that everybody's going to agree because they're not. We can't assume that we're going to get everything that we want because we're not. I mean, that's just that's life. That's what we all have to do on a daily basis. And why would government and politics be different? Now, in that, we have to be clear about what we want and mm -hmm. we have to come together, present our views, figure out a way to move forward. That's life. I'm encouraged by it seems like in the past few years that more folks have been getting more politically active and, and involved in the civic discourse, because ultimately, if we are to have a democracy, we have to have people involved. We have to have them interested and we have to have them going out to vote, not just every four years, but every year in every election, because even those you know, small municipal and local elections that, you know, you have to do a little digging to find out who the candidates are. Those are important. And, and mm -hmm. in some ways, those are even more important than the national election because it's going to have the most direct impact and the quickest impact on us. Oh, absolutely. It's my jam. <laughs> I love midterms because I like getting like a, my husband just like you do all the research and just tell me who everybody is. I'm like, okay, I have like spreadsheets. <laughs> I'm like, this is what this person does. And this is what this person does. But you're I, right. I'm they're the one. Not just me. <laughs> yes. I love it so much. But yeah, those are the people that are going to directly affect what happens in your town and your street and the people that mm -hmm. decide whether or not I have to mow my lawn. Like, that's just very, <laughs> the tiniest thing. Like, uh, and like this year, my entire city council is really up. So pretty much all the yeah. small things in my town are everybody wasn't up for re-election. So I was kind of disappointed that a lot of people weren't running either. Nobody was really jumping at the opportunity. My husband's like, you should run. I'm like, we've only been here like a year. I don't know everything yet. <laughs> My my husband has pretty much forbid me from getting involved in politics. <laughs> he's like, you can't. He's like, maybe town council one of these days. We'll have a conversation. <laughs> yeah. See, that's right. I, I have such a thin skin. I want everybody to like me. So I don't think I could handle anything too high up because then people are so mean. <laughs> exactly. But it's like, and I want to open a business. And I'm like, you have to be on the town council so you can be where in the room where it happened for another uh, Hamilton reference, because like, you have to make all the decisions. <laughs> well, and, and as you saw on your last episode, that's nothing new. You know, the, mm -hmm. as you talked about the election of 1800, uh, it was so contentious even then and yeah. very dirty and very, you know, attack ads and stuff mm -hmm. like that. It's nothing new. So yeah, it's, it, you, you have to have that thick skin to be able to survive in politics. It's true. Some of the, I have so much respect for the women in politics right now. Cause they deal with a lot. I'm like, I don't have yeah. any me. <laughs> yeah. Like, like Hillary's like bulletproof at this point, the things people say, Oh no, I didn't turn that off. Whoops. Okay. No. I'm so professional. Okay. Oh God. Email about your student loans. Okay. <laughs> I don't like, want to. Friday evening. I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> they did that on purpose to ruin my weekend. <laughs> That's the worst time to send something about student loans. Friday oh, 
I know they did that on purpose. <laughs> that went a dark turn. <laughs> so do you want to jump on into your morbid? Let's just keep I, it keep since, it going since, down. Since, since we're going dark, let's, let's go the morbid route. It's the perfect segue. <laughs> so, exactly. So the story I have to share with you is actually the story of the only person to date to be both the son of and the father of a U.S. president. Oh, nice. Yes. So his name is John Scott Harrison. Hence, (laughs) (laughs) For those of you not watching, he has a real sweet shirt. (laughs) Tip a canoe and Tyler too. So so this starts with the ninth president of the United States, William Henry Harrison, and his wife, Anna. Basically, the Harrisons, they had 10 children, nine of whom who lived to adulthood. But, and and that's the thing, like back in the day, you know, infant mortality rates were much higher than they are nowadays. So mm-hmm. the fact that nine out of 10 of the children lived to adulthood was quite surprising. Yeah. But only four of those nine actually lived to see their father become president. Oh, wow. So even though they lived to adulthood, they still had very short lives. So one of these was John Scott Harrison. So John Scott was born on October 4th, 1804. Like his father and one of his brothers, he actually went to study medicine. But he decided that really wasn't for him. So he ended up coming back to the family farm in North Bend, Ohio. And if, you, if you're not familiar with Ohio, basically North Bend is just down the river from Cincinnati. So it's in the southern part of the state. Oh, okay. um, you know, nowadays it's, I think it was a 30 minute drive. We went to visit a few years back. Um, again, I'm a Harrison fanatic, so I had to go <laughs> see the Harrison sites. Um, but anyway, so yeah, John Scott, he went to the family farm in North Bend, uh, ended up running it. He actually was elected to two terms at, in the U.S. House of Representatives. So like his father and like his son, he ended up getting involved in politics, but he didn't go nearly as far as them. Okay. So he actually went on to have 13 children. Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> so many kids. <laughs> A lot of kids. That's the thing. Like John Tyler, it was funny having like William Henry Harrison followed by John Tyler because both of them had the largest number of kids of any president to date. But unlike with Harrison, Tyler actually had two wives, and so he had children with both of his wives. Likewise, with John Scott, he had his first wife. She had three children, and then she passed away. He got remarried, and then his second wife had 10 children. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Yes. I I don't even want to imagine. (laughs) I, I can't. I know times were different, and because of the mortality rate, and also he had farms and stuff like you had to have kids to help you but still ouch (laughs) just a lot of kids (laughs) there's so many times where we cover somebody and it's based especially like queens because they're able to be more vocal about it they're like i've been pregnant for 14 fucking years and i hate it (laughs) make it stop (laughs) can we just not do this anymore Stay on the other side of the castle. I'm done. 
So John Scott had 13 children. So in those, eight of the 13 ended up living to adulthood, including the person who would become the 23rd president of the United States, Benjamin Harrison. So John Scott would ultimately live the longest out of all of his siblings, but he ended up dying at the age of 73 in May 1878. Oh, wow. Yes. And, uh, you know, especially for that time and especially considering, you know, how many of his other siblings died pretty young. Mm-hmm. He lived a, a, to a ripe old age. But with that, it still wasn't enough. Uh, his son, it was 11 years later before Benjamin Harrison became president. So he didn't actually live to see his son become president. Mm. But yeah, you know, Benjamin Harrison, he did have a, a good career to that point. Uh, he actually served in the Civil War and rose to the rank of Brigadier General. So, oh, wow. you know, we can imagine that he was he was probably proud of him. Yeah. But anyway, so he ended up dying at the age of 73. So the Harrison family gathered in North Bend for the funeral and they went to the cemetery. And when they arrived at the cemetery for the burial, they found that a nearby grave of a recently deceased relation uh, who was named Augustus Devon had been disturbed. Oh, no. (laughs) Yes. That's not a good, that's not what you want to see whenever you go to bury somebody else, that another grave is, (laughs) has been robbed. (laughs) You're grieving and you're already out of it. And you're like, wait, what? (laughs) What's happening? hold on, what is going on here? <laughs> you know, after you start, you know, doing the look around to make sure that it's not a zombie situation, then you start. To <laughs> so grave robbing was actually a big thing back in the 18th and 19th centuries in America. In fact, and, and another Aside with presidential history, there had actually been a scheme to steal Abraham Lincoln's body. Oh, gosh. Uh, back in 1876. Uh, basically, they, these folks were planning on stealing the body and holding it for ransom. Oh, no. Thankfully, a Secret Service agent uncovered the plot and so was able to, to stop them before they stole Lincoln's body. But unfortunately, Augustus Devon wasn't... He, he wasn't a president, so he didn't have Secret Service protection. <laughs> and so his body was stolen. Now, at the time, most grave robbers weren't hoping to hold bodies for ransom. They actually had another purpose for them. So, you know, you think of nowadays with medicine, you know, they've got the electronic mannequins to be able to use for medical training. Well, they didn't have that back then. So they had to use actual cadavers whenever they, you know, medical schools had to get cadavers in order to be able to train folks in medicine and especially with anatomy. So they would go in and and dissect the bodies and, and help these up and coming doctors learn medicine. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem was. With that was that most folks weren't really willing to say, oh, well, here's, you know, Uncle Bill's body. So grave robbing and and they called them uh, resurrection men were common. Basically, they would go into cemeteries, dig up the bodies. You know, they knew that somebody had just been buried, 
and they would sell it to the medical college. It was illegal, but most of the time they got away with it. Like, quote, unquote, illegal. <laughs> exactly. Illegal. Uh, why is it dirty? Why is it so <laughs> juicy? <laughs> yes. Yeah, no. so- the, the medical colleges did not ask any questions about where the body came. Just thank you. You can you can put it over there. <laughs> Just prop it up next to the others. <laughs> oh, it must have been such a trip. I know in my hometown in Little Rock, Arkansas, the old state house that used to be the first capital of Arkansas, they turned it into a hospital for a while. And so that people would bring in the bodies, put it in the basement. And so if you're a student, they'd be like, go down there and drag up a body because it didn't have obviously an elevator. So I'm like, I just can't imagine. So it gives you a half decomposed corpse and you're dragging it up the stairs and it's Arkansas. So it's hot as hell. Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm, no. I'm originally from Louisiana. So I know that feeling. <laughs> humidity plus corpse rotting. Fantastic. Yeah. It's wonderful. <laughs> wonderful. I, oh. I, I wouldn't advise having like medical classes during the summer. In the no. Yeah, Ohio around there is very humid too. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, so we've got these grave robbers that go around and and collect the bodies. So poor Devin, his body was stolen. And so the family at the funeral is like, oh my gosh. So we've apparently got some resurrection men who are operating around here. We don't want anything to happen to John Scott Harrison's body. So they end up, they put him in and uh, they take some extra precautions. They actually place large stones on top of the crypt. And according to one account that I've read, they actually hired a guard to try and guard the body, you know, at least for a month or so, just to make sure nothing happened. So they inter him. Everything's fine. They go away. They're a little more assured, but they've still got this this relation whose body is gone. John Harrison, who was actually John Scott's son and uh, the future president, Benjamin Harrison's brother. So John Harrison, he gets a friend. They go and start working with the police to try and track down, well, what happened to Augustus Devin? So they end up finding a trail and, and, and finding you know, following the trail back to the Medical College of Ohio in nearby Cincinnati. And so they go to the Medical College of Ohio and, you know, knock, knock, knock. Hey, can we look around because we've got a body missing? Uh, yes, I guess, I guess we'll let you. <laughs> oh, man. They, they weren't too enthused about the idea, but finally they let them come in. And so they started searching the building couldn't find anything. So everything looked on the up and up. But then, then, (laughs) so in one account, they said that there was a trap door, but another account didn't have a trap door. It just said that there was a a pulley system with a rope set up. And so they happened to notice, you know, whether it was a trap door or just the rope, they noticed, they're like, oh, what's this? So they start pulling on the rope and it the rope actually went down into a shaft. So they start pulling on the rope and they can tell there's something heavy on the other side. Oh no. 
Oh, no, I know. No. Yeah. So John Harrison and his friend, and I'm assuming the policeman as well, they start, you know, pulling the rope and pulling whatever it is up. Well, they get it up to where they can see, and they see it's a body wrapped in a shroud. So they pull it up to where they can take the shroud off, and they're, you know, at this point in their mind, they're like, okay, well, we, we found Augustus Devon. So they pull the shroud off, and there John Harrison is staring and is face-to-face with the naked corpse of his father. Oh, my gosh. John Scott Harrison was the one down in the shaft. Oh, in my less God. In 24 hours, less than 24 hours after he was buried, they had stole his body, brought it to the medical college. Oh, that's that's an unfortunate use of some hustle. <laughs> <That's>, yes. <laughs> God, so history is more intense than some movies, like mysteries. Like you can't make this up. <laughs> no. Oh my gosh. And, and I'm just I'm picturing like you know you, you think of it like a movie, and so this would be like the dramatic reveal and the, mm-hmm. the dramatic. Um, Music playing, dun dun dun, <laughs> and I mean they're just shocked. They're like, that was not at all what they were expecting. <laughs> no major plot twist. <laughs> exactly. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, they get the body down. They end up because, again, I said it was illegal. So they arrested two folks in association with the theft, including the janitor at the the medical college. The family, you know, wanted to kind of keep it hush-hush because, I mean, that's, you know, it, it, it's not the kind of news you want out about, you know, your father. Yeah. Was, his body was stolen and nearly sliced up. But, of course, you know, he was a prominent name. He was a prominent figure in the North Bend area. And then, you know, the fact that he was the son of a former president. So word got out newspaper accounts about the theft of the president's son's body. And that's how we know of all of this and have all these details was because the newspaper accounts, you know, shared all this. So getting back to Augustus Devon, they did actually find his body. Eventually he was in Michigan at another medical college. Wow. But they did find his body and, they were able to to recover it and reinter his body. And uh, with John Scott Harrison, his remains were actually put into, they have a tomb set up for William Henry Harrison and Anna Harrison. And so John Scott Harrison's body is now interred to the left of their bodies in the presidential tomb. And so folks can actually go to the tomb now, like they've got a memorial set up. Like I said, I, I visited a few years back and you can't go in like they've got a gate set up to try and prevent people from stealing the bodies again. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but you can look into the tomb and see their bodies and, and see, you know, the family reunited in the afterlife. That is wild. <laughs> yeah. oh, I, 
I just can't imagine sitting around me like, you know what? We should go steal one of those presidents. <laughs> and see how much money we can get. That just seems like a lot of work. <laughs> just, wow. That's, that's, that was such a good story. I had not heard that. Blew my mind. You know, just the fact that poor John Scott Harrison, that's, you know, there are two reasons why people know John Scott Harrison. A, because of the whole thing, you know, being the son of and father of a, uh, U.S. president, but then also because he got his body stolen. Yeah, that's unfortunate. <laughs> yes. <laughs> He's like, just forget about that one. Just stick with the the first stick, one. <laughs> stick with the trivia. <laughs> yeah. <Go> with that. <laughs> let's just let that. Let's just you know log that away. Let's not talk about that. That's insane. <laughs> I just can't imagine thinking. You know, you're probably anticipating that you're going to see your loved one and not really wanting to see who it is. But I'm sure none of them expected it was that. <laughs> I mean, they yeah. thought he was, he was safe and sound. We're like, we took these extra precautions. He's yeah. fine. Nope. <laughs> was the security guard still there? He would have still been there if it was. Well, and, and that's what I'm wondering. It's like, okay, so did they give him a cut of the action or just I, the I, other way? Did that they, would be my did guess. They some kind of distraction. Hey, look over here. <laughs> distraction, distraction. Look, I'm trying to steal his other body. <laughs> I would imagine. Be like, hey, if you just go uh, take a lunch break and we'll give you some money. That's or if he goes off and. You know, that's just insane. Plus, people are pretty superstitious back in that time, too. Oh, and, yeah. Oh, man. Well, and, and it's interesting because, like, you know, and, and I haven't read too much about it, but the whole the resurrection men, the, the grave robbing was quite prominent. Like it it, it wasn't completely unheard of. Mm-hmm. And you look at it and, and the medical colleges paid good money because they needed these bodies they needed them to be able to train doctors so it it was lucrative if you didn't get caught and you chose people other than a a prominent figure who everybody would be looking for (laughs) yeah that's wild frankenstein's monster out of the harrison family that's awful (laughs) that was so good thank you no problem my story is less morbid, so yay. <laughs> we'll lighten it up a bit. So I had random, and for random, the Patreon gave me a random word that I have to fit into the theme. So Jolly J gave me food. I couldn't make up my mind what I wanted to do, so this is a very long list of fun facts. <laughs> there are numerous ways you can go there in terms of presidential history. Yes, it was just too fun. And if you want to give me a word, join Patreon, shameless plug. So <laughs> I'll start with the White House chefs. So everything we know about presidents and their food, like what they liked, what they hated, their weirdness, we know from the chefs, which is really cool. So shout out to all the White House chefs. So the executive chef is actually in charge of eating the president, the first family every day. They cater all the official guests at the White House, and they do everything from egg rolling to private functions with the first lady. So they have a lot on their plate. It is the duty of the first lady to actually hire the executive chef, which I did not realize. I thought it would just be a part of the White House staff that somebody else would deal with, but that's part of her official duties. They also have the power to fire said chef like Laura Bush did in 2005. (laughs) 
<laughs> and he was all pissed off. And he went to the New York Times and said that it was just too difficult to satisfy the Bush's stylistic requirements. <laughs> I'm sorry, I wanted seven minute eggs, not eight. Yeah. Minutes. <laughs> and all I think of is like 2005, like we had more important things to worry about, like a war than your breakfast, but to each their own. It was <laughs> just like this weird time. You overburnt the toast one too many times. We're done. <laughs> yeah. And the White House also has a pastry chef, and they're most well known for their giant gingerbread houses they do every Christmas. We actually had somebody write in for a listener story about being, I think, like eight or nine and getting to go to the White House and seeing the gingerbread house for the bushes. So that's pretty cool. Wow. And they're also in charge of like day-to-day desserts for the White House. And a lot of the chefs talk about it and they say they spend the entire year planning the gingerbread house. But the baking doesn't actually start until November. So four days after Thanksgiving, they work quote, tirelessly to build this house. And then they move it into the state dining room where more than 60,000 people on average see it like pre-COVID. So back when we could be around people, (laughs) everybody would flock. Back in the good days. (laughs) Yeah. Like, you remember crowds? (laughs) Do you remember travel? <laughs> oh, it seems like it's been so long since I've gone places. Oh, anyway, they can also cancel certain foods. So, John Meller, a former chef, said that if a president doesn't like something, they will ban it from the White House. <laughs> and George W. banned broccoli and Brussels sprouts. <laughs> It's it's every kid's dream. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I just thought it was so funny. Just like broccoli. Gross. Ban it from the White House forever. No. And the chef is on call 24-7. So they can never turn their phones off as part of their job. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I just can't imagine like having cake on call anytime, day and night. I would be in trouble. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> oh, chocolate cake. Yeah. Yes, please. <laughs> Instead of, you know, being in bed and do I really want to get up and go to the kitchen for a midnight snack? Being able to just, hey, (laughs) it's midnight. (laughs) (laughs) And there were a couple of chefs that said that, yeah, you know, in a case of an emergency, people are up at three in the morning that they typically don't order like a big meal or something. And one guy said in 10 years, nobody ever called him past midnight. But I can imagine it's tempting just knowing that whatever you want. It's waiting for you. <laughs> well, especially like the first few days, you know, you, you've got to enjoy this a little bit. Come on. <laughs> you mean I can have anything? <laughs> Which, spoiler alert for next week's episode, I did find out that the president is responsible for paying for their own food. So I guess if you have to pay for it, you might yeah. not want to eat all the food. You really can't go with the generic brand. It's fine. We don't need the, the fancy stuff. Yeah. The biggest shocker is that they don't get overtime. They're there all the time. They work nonstop, but they don't get overtime. Wow. But they make bank anywhere from 80 to 100,000 a year. So that's nice. I, yeah, they can't complain too much. <laughs> I could live with that. That would be fine. <laughs> I think I'd be willing to to stay up until like three in the morning to yeah. deal with late night snacks. I'd bake a cake at three in the morning for a hundred thousand yeah. a year. 
it's fine. And the state dinners have like a whole rule book and some of them are kind of weird. So a few portions of this rule book says, quote, second portions are never offered, but can be served if guests require them. And it also notes that from the moment the first course is placed on the table to the moment the last course is served, no more than 55 minutes may elapse. Wow. It's very specific. Why not just round up to an hour? I don't understand. 55 minutes. Yeah, it's very specific. And each course must be absolutely ready to serve at the exact time it's supposed to go out. Delays are not tolerated. So. <laughs> It's funny because at Buckingham Palace, they have they've changed all their clocks, so they're five minutes fast, so that they can never be late. She has to always have her food on time. So I'm like, maybe they should take a note from Buckingham Palace and just change all their clocks. See, and and that was definitely not the way of the Jefferson White House. <laughs> Jefferson had more of a pell mell style. Basically, once dinner is served, you go and find your seat. We're not going to tell you where to sit. We don't really have any fancy rules. They actually had um, the the dumbwaiters installed so that folks could actually go and get their own plates. Oh, or cool. if they had servants waiting on them, it was a minimal number of servants. And Jefferson actually got into trouble with the new British minister to the U.S., Anthony Mary, and his wife when they came to their first dinner at what was then known as the president's house. They were used to proper British functions and you had you had certain mores and fashions that you followed with dinner. And when they were like, oh, dinner served and everybody just start rushing to the table, the Marys were clutching their pearls. (laughs) (laughs) What is going on here? (laughs) No home training. (laughs) Just. What's wrong with you? The Marys would have loved these rules. Oh, I'm sure. But the food also has to be super safe. Nobody wants to repeat like what happened to you know George W. in Japan. Although that's very controversial. Some people say that he just got super sick for no reason, and some people think he got food poisoning. And then I saw that his wife and her book thought that maybe he got poison poisoned. But if you don't remember that one time George W. puked in the prime minister's lap and then passed out, so can't have that happening (laughs) no no we really we don't want to make that impression (laughs) No. and then i'm going to throw it back to episode one the chefs are responsible for hard boiling around fourteen thousand eggs for the easter egg roll and then they hand dye each one oh my gosh that is so many (laughs) eggs oh so yeah the first episode i did the easter egg roll and i actually know the easter uh, the easter bunny from bill clinton's time at the white house Oh, wow. I was so excited. I was like, tell me all the secrets. <laughs> yeah, she's very cute. Every year she posts her picture on Easter. She's like, that was me. And she I was really, it. really upset when Spicer took the vest off. She's like, you cannot take his vest off. He's naked now. <laughs> so Barack Obama was the first president to ask the chefs to brew some beer. Assistant chef Sam Cass says, Quote, brewing beer is becoming a thing that Americans are doing in their homes and garages across the country. I do that here, so I can attest to that. And the president certainly thought it would be a good idea to see if we could join the American people in that time-honored tradition and brew some of our own beer. So that's fun. There's a White House honey ale, I think. 
I don't think you can buy it or anything, but I found a picture on the internet. So <laughs> a little labels and everything. Well, if we need to work down the national debt, you know, they can start selling <laughs> beer. <laughs> George H.W. Bush loved his snacks. His favorite was pork rinds covered in Tabasco sauce. And it was listed as the weirdest thing presidents eat. But since living in Texas, that doesn't seem very weird at all. <laughs> know, <right? laughs> seems like something everybody's eating here. I don't know. That, that that was a regular snack in Louisiana as well. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Memories. <laughs> uh, but Nixon, on the other hand, did gross me out with his snack of choice. He liked cottage cheese with pineapple, which I'm on board. I eat that all the time. But he put ketchup on it. Oh, it's just, I don't understand. That's no, that, that, that did have been a clear indication that there was something wrong with this guy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and the other thing I found is that he banned soup from the white house and his exact reasons are unknown, but some people, <laughs> including white house staffer, Roger Morris said, quote, he almost invariably dribbled on himself. So he banned it. <laughs> Instead of, I mean, just just put a little napkin. It's fine. You're the president. No you not to do that. Can you just imagine being a person that if you spilt soup on yourself, you'd be like, "It's done. It's out. Banned no it. more. No more." I mean, I guess in hindsight, we know who Nixon is now. But oh, poor White House staff. <laughs> just um. See, see, this chef should have been. You know, pulled somebody to the side. Okay, there's something wrong with this guy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you may want to keep an extra eye on him. <laughs> yeah, there's something there's something going on. And it, this was gross too. Bill Clinton liked Coca-Cola flavored jelly. And it had black gl- glossé cherries. And then he said it was a old Arkansas family recipe. I'm from Arkansas. I've never heard of this before. And it just sounds really gross. <laughs> <laughs> So the next one, Ronald Reagan, in order for the chef to make his favorite dish, his wife had to leave town. According to the chef, first lady gave him strict orders never to give her husband chocolate. (laughs) I just can't imagine just how awkward that is. The president of the United States being like, give me some damn chocolate. No, I'm scared of Nancy. (laughs) Well, and the poor chef, you know, Nancy comes in one door, don't give him any chocolate, walks out. Reagan comes in the other one. Where's the chocolate? <laughs> uh. And it said that when she left town, that all bets were off, and his favorite meal would include a steak with a side of mac and cheese and a huge bowl of chocolate mousse. <laughs> and he said when she was out of town, he was, quote, a very happy man. <laughs> oh, man. Nancy, dear, are you sure you don't want to stay for a few more days? <laughs> Yeah, go to a spa. Take care of yourself. Just go relax. Don't no, worry. that's not chocolate mousse that you hear. <laughs> don't worry about it. Don't, don't worry about it. He didn't say chocolate mousse. <laughs> Apparently, she allowed him one treat because he was obsessed with jelly beans, which I think that's a fact most people know, that he always had jelly beans everywhere. And at his inauguration, <laughs> Jelly Belly gave him 3.5 tons of jelly beans. Wow. That's a lot of jelly beans. That is a lot of jelly beans. I don't think they go bad, but like if they did, how long does it take to eat 3.5 tons? 
Yeah, I, I hope that that they didn't keep all of those around like for years and years and years. I hope, not. I hope they passed it out to everybody that came near the White House. That's just too many. Too many. And uh, I just thought it was interesting. Dwight T. Eisenhower's favorite meals were just something you would find in a British pub. So he loved beef stew, quail hash, and he loved prune whip and English rice pudding. Hmm. So very British. He also loved oxtail soup, but only if he made it himself. Chef, take the night off. I got it. I got it. I've, I've got an oxtail right here. <laughs> so those I just thought was ridiculous. Trump is obsessed with McDonald's, which I think everybody kind of knows. But I didn't know that he actually requested that the White House staff figure out how to make McDonald's food. And he wanted a quarter pounder and he wanted him to figure out how to make the apple pies. But they couldn't match his satisfaction. And the chef said it was likely because the White House chefs work with a higher grade ingredients than McDonald's does. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, that's just a shady burn, but I love it. What do you want from me, man? Like, I am a world class chef. (laughs) I trained for years. I've gone all over the world. I've trained in France. And you want me to cook McDonald's. Okay. And then back to George H.W. Bush. He liked dry overcooked fish. And the chef said that Barbara was a shouter that demanded their fish to be cooked until it was unconventional and really gross. (laughs) And that's the guy that got fired. Probably because he's like, you do not do that to fish. (laughs) Why would you do that? (laughs) This is actually flaky and succulent I want it ruined. (laughs) And then I just thought this was kind of sad, but here we go. So gingerbread cookies was a luxury for Abraham Lincoln. And he said that during his childhood, his mom would make it out of sorghum and ginger. And then when he was president, he just kind of asked the chefs, like, can you figure out how she made them? And then they never could get the recipe right. So he was just really sad that nobody was able to duplicate his mother's recipe. You know, that was just kind of sad. That's all he wanted. And everything you ever read about Abraham Lincoln is people being like, the dude never eats. Like, he's huge, but he never eats. He just didn't enjoy food, I guess. I don't, can't imagine being that tall and not wanting food. <laughs> he got fuel. He just wanted his cookies. <laughs> yeah. If I can't have the gingerbread, I don't want anything. <laughs> and this was just weird. President Calvin Coolidge would eat boiled raw wheat every morning. While he ate it, he instructed White House staffers to rub Vaseline on his head. <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand. <laughs> Coolidge was a character. <laughs> One of those things that, like, you ask people to do something to see if they'll do it. Like, it's just like. This is hilarious. Watch. <laughs> well, and I, I believe it was Coolidge who would also like he would call somebody from who was outside of the room and ask him to come in, and he would hide. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he was very much a character. <laughs> uh, that's like a good sense of humor, though. That's really rare. In and then, so this is probably, you'll know the most about uh, Thomas Jefferson loved to drink wine so much, he ordered it by the barrel. <laughs> yes. Yes, he did. <laughs> he required and cheers to that. Cheers, <laughs> yes. Cheers to that. And it said like every meal was like four to six different kinds of wines. And a lot of these 
said that he was the original foodie of the U.S., that he would travel the world and bring back all the dishes he really liked in America, including, like, mac and cheese and french fries. I was like, hell yeah, Tommy J. <laughs> Super problematic, but you have good taste in food, I guess. Let's, yes. Like, something positive about everybody, I guess. But Yeah, he actually, so, you know, that, that was one of the things that Jefferson really believed in was, you know, food and um, agriculture. For anybody who's been to Monticello, there's a huge garden. I mean, filled with fresh produce and things like that. Nowadays, try and, and replicate it as much as possible. And he kept detailed records of what he was growing, when, how it turned out. He would try and do like seed swaps with folks. He actually, I'm trying to remember exactly what it was, but there's some type of plant or some type of seed that he actually smuggled out of what we now know of as Italy. Apparently, like it was some local thing and it it was their their big thing. So there were laws that, you know, you just don't, you can't take it outside of this area. And apparently he did. (laughs) (laughs) In 1802, the town of, is it Cheshire? Is that one of those towns that I think it sounds like that? And then it's not. I believe that's it. Okay. <laughs> Massachusetts. They gave Thomas Jefferson a 1,235-pound block of cheese. The cheese, known as the Cheshire Mammoth cheese, was allowed to sit and stink and ripen in the White House for two years. <laughs> that is so much cheese. Yes. And and folks would kind of come by and like take off a little chunk of it. They start to cut away some of the bad parts. And <laughs> you just don't. Don't don't have a big block of cheese for years, please. No, <laughs> chunk it into the Potomac. <laughs> <laughs> There's just a point where you just gotta give up. <laughs> I, I'm I'm all about leftovers, but at some point you just gotta say enough's enough. <laughs> very true, very. And I love cheese, but that's just too much for me too. Just it's okay to throw food out if it's. <laughs> just, And then poor William Howard Taft, he gets a bad rap as being the heaviest president, but he apparently liked to eat and his favorite meal was breakfast. And it was reportedly a 12 ounce steak, two oranges and multiple pieces of butter toast every morning. I can't imagine eating a steak every single morning. That would be a. And and especially like actually doing something with the rest of the day. (laughs) I would just be sleepy. I just feel bad because I think the only people thing they know about him is that he got stuck in a bathtub. So I'm like, oh. well, and and poor Taft, like he he really wasn't too eager to be president. He his ambition, his dream in life was to be on the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Um, his wife was very ambitious, and so she kind of you can do the court thing later. Why don't why don't you try for this president thing? You know. TR really likes you. And of course, you know, when TR gets an idea in his mind, that's it. Mm-hmm. So Taft became president. He couldn't stand it. And then things soured with Teddy Roosevelt. They ended up competing against each other in the 1912 election. And apparently Taft was kind of an emotional eater. And so naturally during his time in office, he gained some weight and, and was eating more than usual. After he left office, and especially after he was named as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, he apparently lost a good deal of weight. He was walking around. I forget how 
Like he, from wherever he lived in D.C., he would walk to and from the Supreme Court every day. Oh, cool. And like he just loved walking. And so he was much healthier in his later years because he was happy. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The office of the president kind of weighs heavy. <laughs> it's like yes. a lot. It's a lot of stress. And either I can imagine I am a uh, comfort eater. So <laughs> probably not not do so well either. <laughs> oh, man. I, I love the stories. I like RBG, like working out on the Supreme Court. Like she's <laughs> boss. Like my lipstick's called the Notorious RBG. I was so excited when I came in. Yesterday. I was like, yes. <laughs> love her so much. <laughs> I love it. I, I have an RBG uh, coffee mug. Oh, <laughs> a friend so had gotten it for me a few few months back. So <laughs> she is the best. So Johnson, he's also a character. He liked foods like chipped beef on toast and tapioca pudding. So JFK, they were very into French foods. So they had this very fancy French chef. So when <laughs> Johnson came in. <laughs> They did not get a well, get along very well. So his name was Rene Verdon, and he left the White House in 1965, reportedly resigning in a huff over the request to make garbanzo bean dip. <laughs> he said, quote, the Johnsons like to have a certain food, but I think people coming to the White House are not expecting hamburgers, chili, con queso, or spare ribs. Those foods belong to the land. They do not belong in the dining room. <laughs> <laughs> I am done. I cannot work with this man anymore. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure Jackie had him, like, <laughs> came over from France. Like, they were very, you know hip hip about it so yeah i guess johnson would be quite the culture shock <laughs> like, well in so many ways <laughs> like, oh yes <laughs> he was also obsessed with fresca remember fresca that was big back in the day <laughs> he had a soda dispenser installed in the oval office wow <laughs> like, that's intense if you <laughs> If anybody was going to do it, it was going to be LBJ. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so Sam Cass was one of Michelle Obama's advisors that helped her come up with the food program for kids in the schools. And so he was trying to help them figure out how to balance her nutritional diet with, you know, the food they liked. <laughs> so when they came into the White House, the pastry chefs were making pies every day and cakes and stuff. So their idea was to... Uh, only allow pies and cakes on the weekend. So that was their compromise. So that the pastry chef had something to do, but then they also weren't eating cake every single day. <laughs> They're like, the president loves food, but let's not give him a cake, okay? <laughs> we'll just, we'll just limit that. <laughs> and, and of course, the president was like, okay, is it is it cake time yet? Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's weekend. Give me my pie. Have it ready and waiting for me. <laughs> and then the Carter family. I just love Jimmy Carter. He's just a treasure. Chef said a little known secret about the Carters is that they didn't care for peanuts. <laughs> <laughs> Although you can kind of understand that. I mean, when when that's basically your your thing, it's like, yeah, I, I really don't need to see another peanut after you know, 10 hours of seeing peanuts. <laughs> yeah. I imagine it's probably not a big shocker that peanut farmers don't really 
yeah. lose their minds over peanuts after so long. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm good. And according to his wife, Jimmy Carter was the one in charge of breakfast at home. And it consisted of grits, cheese, eggs, and coffee. And he loved grits so much, he named his dog after it. <laughs> I thought that was cute. A little puppy named Grit. (laughs) And then Teddy Roosevelt liked meals that were comfort foods like pigs in a blanket and fried chicken. And one of his favorite meals in particular was turtle soup. Oh, poor turtles. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. TR is definitely a character study and, and, um, that's the thing. Like, you know, there are reports of how much food he ate, he consumed, <laughs> but he, you know, he would exercise vigorously. Mm-hmm. He was actually known for, um, oh gosh, what is it called? Uh, basically, he would he would set out and he would he would bring folks with him. Like, he would bring ambassadors and cabinet members and members of Congress. They're like, oh, let's go for a walk. And by walk, he didn't mean like a nice leisurely stroll. He meant we're going to go into the woods and just go through everything. And and it doesn't matter what obstacles we hit. We're going to go through them. You know, let's climb this hill. Let's climb over this this stone or whatever. Yeah, we can get across that river. Just jump in. Everybody else is like, oh, we don't want to hang out with that guy anymore. Do we really have to go on this walk? Really? We'll we'll wait for you. We'll we'll see you when you get back. That is too funny. We all have that one friend. (laughs) Yeah, let's do that. No, let's don't. Ashley, I I am that friend to her. I'd be like, let's let's go hiking. And it's like, let's go up this mountain. And she's like, I hate you. (laughs) No. Let's not do that. Can't stand it. <laughs> so the chef that was hired by Hillary Clinton and then fired by Laura Bush said that her favorite thing in the whole world was hot sauce. And so she always had a whole selection in the kitchen of all different kinds of hot sausage sauces. And when she was running for president, they asked her the one thing that she carried with her at all times. And she said hot sauce. Oh, she had hot sauce in her bag. She did. Swag. <laughs> 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 and then uh, FDR served hot dogs to King George VI and Queen Elizabeth on a visit to the U.S. once. So I imagine the culture shock. <laughs> but I'm like, I wonder, like, in- internally, they're externally, they're just being gracious because that's what British people do. You know, they fake it. But internally, they're probably like, what the actual? <laughs> <laughs> why would you give this to us? Everything that you have here. Why a hot dog? If you've never seen the movie Hyde Park, Hyde Park on Hudson, they actually recreate that scene. Oh, I, 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 I recommend it. checking it out. Oh, <laughs> it's <okay>. pretty hilarious. <laughs> Hyde Park on Hudson. Is that the one with Bill Murray? Yes. Yes. Okay. I need to watch that. Yes. Bill Murray, uh, Laura Linney. Yes. I've been meaning to watch that for years. <laughs> Just <laughs> well, now you've got the hot dog incident to yes. <laughs> look forward to. I was looking for a presidential movie to watch. I do a drunk dive on Patreon where I go over the inaccuracies of all historical movies. So that might be the next one. There you go. <laughs> this one's not as good. So James Garfield like squirrel soup. Oh. <laughs> I'm just traumatized. So my dad was mostly deaf. He was born premature, so it didn't all develop. And he loved to hunt, even though he couldn't hear anything to actually hunt. 
But like the few times he caught a squirrel, he would try to cook it. But he's also from Chicago and he doesn't know how to cook wild game. So the one time I remember him cooking a squirrel, he didn't like skin it or take the head off. It was just a squirrel in a pot. And I was traumatized. (laughs) (laughs) Why? What is going on here? (laughs) His eyes. It is imprinted in my brain. And it was horrible. So now when I see people eat squirrel, I'm like, oh, I'm (laughs) I'm sure it's lovely if you know how to cook it, but he did not. It it, it goes back to that time. It's like, oh my gosh. Uh, yeah, I, I actually have a friend who um won't eat anything like if it still has eyes on it. And I'm like, you know, most times I don't mind, but I think squirrel in a pot. Yeah, yeah that was not that would great. be that would be creepy. <laughs> Well, there's some places around here that do like red snapper with the head still on and stuff, mm. and it's like a delicacy. And I can understand that, but no, no, not a squirrel. Nope, nope, nope. <laughs> George Washington liked hoe cakes. Yes, he did. I just, I just like the name. And he topped it with honey. <laughs> and then I, I found out it originated from a Native American recipe. So I thought that was fun. And James Madison and Dolly popularized ice cream. So thank you, the Madisons. I love ice cream. But do you know what Dolly's favorite flavor was? No, I do not. Oyster Ah! ice cream. Yeah. No. 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 I love ice cream as well, but no. I can live without knowing what that tastes like. (laughs) Oh, no. No, 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 no. I mean, I like oysters. And I like exactly. ice cream, but I can't imagine how those two collide. Exactly. Let's have mm-hmm. the oysters. We can have the ice cream for dessert, but just don't mix them. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew Jackson's favorite dish was called leather britches. <laughs> of course it was. <laughs> and After he shot the guy who was in him. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It is apparently just a term for green beans cooked in bacon, but I've never heard it called that. So I, I surprised me. I mean, I'm Southern, but I don't think I've ever heard it called that. Uh, and John Tyler loved Indian pudding, which, you know, problematic title aside, it's just spice and ice cream. It's very similar to English desserts have raisins and currants in them. Hmm. So that's interesting. And Zachary Taylor dug like a pastry covered in powdered sugar. So what we would call a beignet now. So that's fun. But I guess a bummer for him, though, because, you know, he died uh, very brutally of cholera after eating a bunch of cherries and iced milk. So yeah. uh, that Which wasn't great. Again, <laughs> like, and especially where it had apparently been sitting out for a little bit and in the middle of the mm-hmm. summer. Yeah. I'm, 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 I'm not thinking of milk whenever it's steaming hot out. <laughs> no. And there are some people who are like, well, maybe the acids of the milk and the cherries together cause something. But I'm like, I don't know. I'm thinking, thinking the cholera sounds pretty. Because they're like, he well, also chugged water and the water was dirty and there was an well, outbreak. And that's the thing, like with, um, with William Henry Harrison, because, you know, he's famous for being the one month president. Mm-hmm. Basically, with Harrison, the story was always that he died of pneumonia after giving the longest inaugural speech and it was raining and he didn't have a coat on. Well, the thing was, like, now we're able to do more studies and um, really dig into the story. And a few years back, they came out with an article 
apparently the water supply for the White House at that point was um, downhill from where the people of Washington, D.C. dumped their refuge. Oh, no. So they're pretty sure that it seeped into the water supply. And so there were bacteria growing, which caused basically typhoid fever in people who had, you know, already compromised immune systems. So Harrison up until Ronald Reagan was the oldest person to become president. So he was already kind of susceptible to it. James K. Polk had pretty, you know, even though he was young, he wasn't in the best of health and he worked himself to death pretty much literally over a four year time span. He died a few months after he left the presidency. Andrew Jackson, and I believe that Howard may have mentioned this in the last episode, during his time in the White House, he was pretty ill most of the time. Whenever he left office, he lived for another 10 years, and it seemed like his health improved. So, yeah, it's it's pretty certain that Tyler fell into that tainted water, and he was pretty well up there. And, of course, medicine at that point did not help matters. No, it did not. (laughs) Do some cocaine about it. Have a leech. (laughs) Would you like a dose of mercury? (laughs) <laughs> how about some opium just whichever oh lord yeah typhoid oh that's so gross <laughs> yes it is such a bad way to go i can't even imagine yes i and and i won't i won't share the gory details but harrison's last few days were not good at all it, yeah. it was a pretty nasty and bad way to go yeah yeah i was reading what happened for taylor and yeah it's basically like severe food poisoning so i'm assuming that he probably did have cholera that would just be very rough (laughs) and i didn't want to end it on that because that's really (laughs) i've got one more food quote so obama said that his favorite food is nachos quote that's one of the foods that i have to have taken away from me i'll have guacamole coming out of my eyeballs (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I just love that, like, Michelle is so disciplined with, like, her diet and stuff. And then Obama's like, take away my nachos, please. (laughs) Don't let me have pie. (laughs) Only on the weekends. Only on the weekends. (laughs) Yeah, it ended up being really interesting, all the food things and just the different chefs. And, you know, some of them really enjoyed their presidents and some of them really did not (laughs) well and and it's just like anything else and i think that that really helps to humanize presidents Mm -hmm. and you know food is such a part of culture and society over time it's fascinating to to get those tidbits and get that little insight into some of these characters and some of these individuals Mm -hmm. it was really interesting but just don't serve Richard Nixon, any soup. Lord have mercy. It's just so funny. Like grown adults being so just offended by soup. <laughs> <laughs> 
uh, I'm officially banning broccoli. <laughs> <laughs> I've wanted to do that for years. <laughs> oh, oh man. Normally, broccoli is something you hate as a kid, but when you're an adult, you're like, all right, that's pretty good. But I guess that didn't happen. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh. My Lord. Well, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, This is great. And I look forward to hearing your your third presidential episode and hope everybody uh, checks out presidencies. Uh, The presidencies of the United States is available pretty much anywhere fine podcasts can be found. I'm on uh, Facebook at presidencies on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast, and that's all one word. Um, Just search for Presidencies, and you will find me. Awesome. And I will definitely tag all this in the show notes, so you can definitely find it really fast. (laughs) (laughs) I like to make things easy on folks. (laughs) Yes, the easier the better. That's why I was really glad that, like, historical AF pod across the board was (laughs) Not taken. I was like, all right, we're good. That's how I picked the name. Nobody had it. <laughs> well, you have a great weekend. Absolutely. And you too. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> Again, I want to thank Jerry from the Presidencies of the United States podcast for joining me. I had such a great time. He is so knowledgeable. You guys, you have to check out this podcast. You just have to. And I have everything linked in the bottom in the show notes. Before I get into all the many reasons you should join Patreon, I have a shout out this week. I am so excited to welcome our newest majestic as fuck patron to the fam, Amber A. She has been a longtime listener and dare I say friend that we've made over the internets because that's what you do now because nobody can leave their house. But she has been on our social media been so supportive since really really early on and she's a fellow texan so super excited to have her join she's hilarious and she's actually going to be guesting on the podcast relatively soon so that's really exciting so thank you thank you thank you amber thank you and if you want to be cool like amber and join patreon there's so many benefits i've added so much new stuff and you can get anything from merch you get to co-host you get to watch all of these live and comment along which is really exciting and some of my favorite parts of all of this is talking to you guys while we record it's a really good time and you get to see the like five hours i cut out of everything oh i talk so much but if you want to join now's the time to do it because i'm still doing the contest right now if you join patreon Right now, you're entered to win a contest. You'll get to be our co-host for the October Spooky Mini Gab. And you'll also get Ghost Hunting for Dummies, so you can make fun of Z-Bags. And you'll also get, this is my Ghost Hunting shirt shirt. (laughs) So definitely join now. And it'll be going a couple more weeks. And then it'll be over. And you will not get the Zach Bagans book. Join Patreon. That's patreon.com slash historicalafpod. Anywho, if you want to follow the podcast on social media, it is at Historical AF Pod across the board. So Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So if you want to email me or email me a story for the listeners episode, send that to historicalafpod at gmail.com. If you want merch, you can check that out at shop.spreadshirt.com slash historicalafpod. And I have been adding some new stuff, so it's really exciting. And finally... 
if you just want to go to one place and find all of this, that's historicalafpodcast.com. Thank you guys so much for listening. I just appreciate every single one of you so much. I hope you're all doing well. And I will see you next week. I will be joined by hashtag history for presidents part three. Okay, bye.